Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, Murder in the Burbs. Without exception, each man who saw the lifeless body of Betty Gore the night of June 13th reflexively averted their eyes. Even those who already knew what lay beyond the utility room door were never bold enough to look for more than a moment before closing the door again. Those words are from the jacket of the book, Evidence of Love. A True Story of Passion and Death in the Suburbs, written by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson. This fascinating book, source material for at least one documentary on the subject, is not so much a whodunit as it is a whydunit. It was my pleasure to sit down with author and journalist Jim Atkinson to explore the brutal murder through his eyes. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Well, I, um, I've obviously been around a long time because this, this book itself is uh, uh, 35 years old or so. Um, I started in journalism back in the 70s at a newspaper in Dallas, um, the Times-Herald. I went to, to work in television for a while. I then started a city magazine in Dallas called um, D Magazine. Um, it's still publishing, in fact, which is amazing these days. Um, in about 1980, I went to uh, Texas Monthly Magazine, a larger publication, and met John Bloom. We officed together. And at about that same time, the Candy Montgomery case uh, went down. And we both kind of went, huh, <laughs> and uh, which, which your listeners will understand why in just a second. But uh, John, uh, John was not that experienced at criminal justice reporting. I was, and so we decided to team up. And I also knew the attorney involved uh, in defending uh, Miss Montgomery. And so we kind of started from that all nonfiction crime books seem to start with a defense attorney looking for publicity. And this one is not terribly different in that way. Uh, but the, um, the story itself is. We actually uh, came in on the back end of it. We did not cover it for the magazine. We, we let it kind of unfold. And as it unfolded, we became you know, yet more fascinated. And um, once it was over, neither one of us had done a book before. So, you know, honestly, we didn't know exactly what we were doing. We just had a, a vague instinct that this thing stood out from the ordinary uh, run-of-the-mill, um, you know, true crime murder story. So let's jump into, I think one of the things to start with, um, a little bit of the background of the, the area, the geography, uh, give us an idea of where all these people lived, what the, what the town was like, the city. Yeah, it's, this is very much a story um, of the suburbs of America in the 80s, and specifically North Texas. But, um, and these were... The, the area where this occurred were more what, what we've come to call exurbs, meaning uh, these small towns in uh, outer lying counties around a big metropolis like Dallas-Fort Worth 
where the, the railroad stopped going through years ago and the little place, everybody, you know, has gone off to college and not come back and the place is on, on life support. And suddenly in the 70s, a, a lot of busing decisions came down and there's a lot of white flight and um, young white professionals began escaping to these places or moving to them in the first place. And uh, the prices were right for the real estate. They could have their own schools and uh, they liked the idea of, of having their own little town with their own little church and their own little shopping center and all of that. And um, these people involved in this drama were, were uh, as I say, young professionals, well-educated in their young 30s, uh, but they were all from rural roots. They were only a generation away from the country. And I always felt that all of them, their degrees notwithstanding, I think they really, uh, uh, they really sought a place that was semi-rural or at least not urban in the way that uh, inner city Dallas can be. And they felt a comfort zone um, was something that was a, a little more wide open and less populated. So um, lay out the uh, uh, the cast of characters, as it were, for us. You really have two suburban couples uh, of, of the sort that I just described. You have uh, Candy and Pat Montgomery, who were about 30 years old. I, I remember all that because I was about 30 years old when I was writing about them. Um, they, uh, Pat was a very uh, prominent, actually, for his age, uh, uh, engineer at Texas Instruments, which was up that direction north, north of Dallas um, in those days. Uh, Candy was uh, um, a homemaker, um, but had, as we'll learn, uh, uh, other ambitions. Um, then you had Alan and Betty Gore, a similar couple. Um, Alan was not as, uh, at that time, not as successful as Pat at all, but was also in the the high tech business with Rockwell, I think, International. Betty, his wife, was a school teacher uh, at the local high school, and um, they all belonged to the same little church uh, in these little neighborhoods out there that uh, had cropped up. Um, with all of the migration to the, the greater Dallas area, uh, they, uh, a lot of these folks had sought out a, a church, a, a kind of a, a social center for their new, um, their, their new homes. And so they revived this little Methodist church. It was actually in the town of Lucas, which is near to Wiley. And, um, quite a number of them, you know, by that I mean 25 or 30, like 15 couples or so, became very active members of this church and it was kind of the center uh, of their lives other than their work and, uh, and their children. Although um, on the surface uh, it seemed like a, an idyllic life uh, in the Burbs, but there, um, there were problems, were there not? there was a collision between the lives these young people were living and the times in which they were living. <laughs> this is, they're living in this small town, they're living this kind of cloistered existence, and, and it is necessarily, it's a very um, kind of conservative life. I mean, you go to work, you come home, you eat dinner, you go to, you go to a church social or the kids play, you, as you say, this kid stays over, that kid stays over. Um, and it was very much a lifestyle that, that their parents had lived. You know, meanwhile, you know, the rest of the, of the world, and certainly in Dallas-Fort Worth, it was 1980, and all kinds of things were going on that weren't part of their lives. And I think this eventually, because these people were 30 years old, 
and still had a lot of their lives ahead of them. They were bright, they were energetic, uh, well-educated. This became a frustration. And I think particularly so for the two women, Candy and Betty. I mean, I think they, they felt like they were stuck in this life that they had observed their mothers <laughs> being stuck in. And, um, uh, and, it, and it was a source of irritation and, and frustration to them. And that's when problems began. Suppressed by suburban ennui. <laughs> that, that's a heck of a phrase. Well, there you go. That's a 50 cent word. <laughs> they, they, um, I looked it up before I came to talk to you, but um, they, uh, yeah, they struck out in different ways for a sense of adventure, for something a little more different, something to, to break up the monotony. Because, again, because they were young people themselves, they had a sense of all this going on out there around them. And uh, it's, it's always been an irony to me about this situation that they, you know, the, these people, particularly the women, they, they selected this lot. They, they selected this life. They married who they married because they would have a safe and predictable life. Uh, there's no question about that. But once there <laughs> for a sufficient amount of time, we know how that goes. Uh, they were um, they were frustrated and and uh, um, you know bored. Bored, bored's uh, a good word. Yeah, and uh, so should I proceed or proceed because yeah. um, the one who who at least I'm I'm guessing unless I'm wrong again I read this about three weeks ago that uh, uh, Candy was the one that that took the big, the big plunge, the big right. move. There's, a, there's one little brief thing I'll mention that, that, that I think helped catalyze all this. And, and that was that the, when they all gathered at this church in the first place, there was this fairly pedestrian young guy who was the, the preacher and um, no one much liked him. Maybe he was a pleasant enough guy, but nobody liked him. He, even that, the, the church part of it was becoming more part of the boring routine of everything. And at some point he, he left. Uh, I don't know that they drove him away, but anyway, he left. And this, this bright young lady Methodist preacher shows up. Well, she's very charismatic. She's very smart. She's kind of preaching warmed over new age stuff you know love one another be with one another be in the moment all this stuff rather than quoting scripture and all that and and again these very very young people who who stuck themselves out in the suburbs or this is all this is exciting so and so on so candy especially candy montgomery gets it in her head that 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 and I think emboldened by this female preacher, um, uh, she, she decides she wants to have an affair outside her marriage and that that's going to be her foray into the, the um, you know, libertine uh, world beyond the boundaries of, uh, of Wiley, Texas. And because, you know, the other thing about, you know, extramarital affairs is, I mean, you certainly have to have the motivation, but there, there needs to be opportunity. And because these people are all kind of crowded together in this little town with this little church, uh, you know, familiarity breeds, uh, 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 you know, extramarital activity, I think. And... So she selected, uh, this is the kind of person she was, she selected um, Alan Gore uh, as the person she would uh, have an affair with. And she, she more or less told him this. Uh, there had been a church volleyball game and 
at some point, um, she and Alan had chased a ball that went out of bounds or something, and she ran into him, and there was sort of this this epiphanal moment where she realized that he, ah he he looks right, he smells right, he you know this whole thing, and uh, as much as she knew about it, I mean she'd really never had an affair before, so um, she uh, she they they later they're walking to the car his car, I think, and she gets in and uh, she says, uh, would you like to have an affair with me? You know, I mean, that's, the lady has moxie and we'll learn the, uh, how much exactly. And uh, 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 he says, oh, I don't, I don't, you know, he fumbles around, you know, I don't know, I don't think I can. And I, I can't, um, you know, we have, they did. Uh, he and Betty had a new child, uh, nine months old or something. You know, I can't, I, I just, you know, I don't want to deal with that. But, but that's what he said. But back here, he's thinking, yeah, I mean, I, you know, maybe this is something I want to do too. So bottom line is they go through this extravagant, lengthy process of talking about it and finally decide, you know, r rationally, yeah, uh, it's the American way, right? They decide rationally to have an affair. And, uh, you know, that part of the tale proceeds, proceeds from there. And again, I, I don't want to be mean to either one of these people, but- No, no, no. No, no, but, but my memory, is I remember you recounting in the book, and I'm assuming this came from you know a, a direct interview, that um, she was sort of surprised at how unsexy he was. Can I use that as a term? That yeah, she made yeah. some kind of comments about like he didn't even know how to French kiss. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's what she said. That's what. And I remember we <laughs> the the reporting of this was just you know, if I can say it was just ridiculous because, you know, people will hedge when they're talking about, you know, did they kill somebody? But boy, you get into sex and and who jilted whom and who was more experienced, you know, all that stuff. And you will get some real lying. And so John and I had to work through it took a couple of months work through these differing versions of of things like what you just said the french kissing thing um at first alan said no you know uh, that that's not right uh, candy's exaggerating and then i kind of i kept working at him on because because it's a fascinating detail i mean you're right it's it's a I mean, it's a little, it's a little embarrassing, and I kind of feel voyeuristic. But then again, it's a fascinating detail. And um, eventually, he admitted, "Well, you know, you know, maybe that was true." And uh, uh, so that's the way it was through the entirety of reporting this whole affair was that you had you had these two versions, and sometimes they were automatically in complete agreement you know yeah we did meet that day yeah you know he was the aggressor or she was the aggressor whatever but but on a lot of things like that you know there was um, you know this disagreement i also remember something that i think again will will makes uh, for my my question coming up in a bit important i think there was a couple of recountings probably from him that after a while, I mean, they met in a motel, lunch hour, whatever, a lot of the time. And for him, it was just a break. It seemed, at least he was saying, that it was not this hot, torrid thing. It's not that he didn't like it. But yeah. it, 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 you do sit there because it is important. Who was this more by the end? Yeah. It only went on for, you know, it didn't go on for years. Who was more attached? Who was more uh, invested? in it well, continuing yeah i you know that, that that's a great great question and i know you probably hear that a lot but i really mean it because candy 
when, when she set this thing up, I mean, she set it in motion. One of the first things she said, and Alan compliantly agreed, was we're not going to get involved. Right? I mean, this will be this will be romantic to in the kind of immediate and spontaneous sense, but in no lasting way is this going to be romantic. And certainly, there's not going to be, uh, you know, anything like love involved. And so she's the one that announced that, and he kind of went, "Yeah, sure, yeah, great, I'm good with that." You know. <laughs> Well, as you are implying, as time went on, Alan was fine with being, I, I hate to put it this way, but kind of being serviced in a sense. Uh, it, although it was more, it was always more than that. But, but I think you're quite correct that he, it never went much more beyond that for him. For her, it did, in my opinion. She never admitted this, but I think, I think she fell in love with it. And, you know, we all know about that. I mean, there's, there's not much controlling it. And you can, you can say what you want, and you can, you can rationalize it. And, and certainly Candy was, a, was an artful rationalizer of her behavior. but. But uh, I, th I think it's totally true that she did fall in love with him. And I think, uh, as you've identified, I think that was a significant difference as time went on and was a, was a, was a trigger <laughs> for what eventually happened. And, and that point, and again, we'll get to it when we get to the trial, but I'm sure when the, the, the defense is, is sorting things out, it's important whether the, for the outcome, it, whether the affair meant as much to her as someone would maybe say, making that a motive, if you will. So, yeah. and that's the debated, that's what a court's for. So. Yeah. Because, uh, again, we are now going to get into the date of uh, uh, June 13th, 1980. There is little, well, I, that's being simplistic. There's not a lot of doubt about what happened uh, structurally or, you know, uh, the story of what, what unfolds. So take us uh, through June 13th, 1980. Candy and Alan had broken off the affair. He essentially broke it off to follow what you and I were just talking about. Um, he's the one who finally said, you know, Betty had been depressed lately. She had been concerned that she was pregnant yet again. She was, uh, and he was feeling a lot of pressure to take care of her as he should have. And, um, and so we, at some point he just uh, got together with Candy and said, you know, I, I, um, uh, I think we ought to just cut this thing off. It's too, it's creating, it's too much noise for me. It's too much uh, pressure. Well, this, she acted, oh, fine, you know, but, you know, this really hurt because she'd fallen for him. And also because she didn't, she was the kind of person who didn't like to be the one jilted. I mean, she, this had been her idea for crying out loud. So, she really didn't want to be jilted and to be the one jilted. But, but that's in fact what happened. So anyway, they, they had been broken up for some time by June 13th, uh, 1980. And even though they're you know, pleasant to one another, they're still in, they're in this very small, tight little environment. So they're seeing one another all the time. Um, and I think that uh, Betty's daughter, Elisa, had been staying with the Montgomery's for a night or two because they had a daughter also and they were good friends. And so Candy left a church meeting to go over to Betty's, ostensibly to uh, pick up a bathing suit for Elisa. She had a swimming lesson and, and she was going to ferry her around that day um, because Betty 
I don't know, Betty wasn't feeling well or something. Um, and so anyway, they're, they're in the house together and they exchange pleasantries. And um, uh, I can go through the whole chronology now or how do you- I, I, Yes, I think we're at the point of that. And again, this chronology, or at least the beginning of it, and we'll find out why in a moment, yeah. it can only come from, uh, from Candy because she is the only eyewitness. That's right. And it should be pointed out, and I'll, I'll explain more about this in a second, but it doesn't even come from the conscious candy uh, in, in, uh, in a way. Uh, at least a lot of it doesn't. Um, candy, uh, they, they exchange small talk. They, the Gores had a new dog. They go visit the new dog in the backyard. They would, it's just all this kind of, kind of typical... Uh, friends prattle and um, uh, at some point Betty uh, gets a faraway look in her eye as there's a pause in the conversation and she gets a faraway look in her eye and she says um, you're having an affair with Alan aren't you in a pretty you know brittle voice and Candy tries to dismiss it uh, in a way, which is not a smart idea, but she tries to dismiss it and says, well, we did, but it's over now. And Betty says, again, with this far off look in her eye, uh, says, wait a minute. And she walks from the living area. This is a very small suburban home. So she walks from the living area through a very small utility room to the garage. She comes back and she's carrying a three-pound axe, kind of a front-weighted axe that you use to split wood with, that you need to swing back and hoist and then split wood. It's not, not a hatchet. It's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a big, heavy old axe. And candy, of course, is, is like, Betty, what are you doing? what's wrong? I mean, she's completely flummoxed. And Betty says, you can't have him. Uh, and Candy, unaccountably, you know, she, she, she just says the worst possible things you can say throughout this. She says, I don't want him. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't help. And so Betty approached her and they're face to face now. Remember, this is a small house. It's a hot, hot June day. I mean, they're, they're, everything about the atmosphere is, is, um, is, con is conducive to violence somehow. And um, they, Betty uh, shoves her using the ax, holding it sideways across her chest pushes her backward toward the utility room, pushes candy backward. And that's what, that's when the violence starts. And she follows her into the utility room. She starts trying to swing this act. Remember, these are two suburban women. They have no familiarity with violence. They don't know what they're doing. So there ensues this, this, I'm sure it seemed endless. It's probably just a couple of minutes, probably. But um, struggle and they're they're you know thrashing about and, and slipping and sliding and the axe is bumping each of them they're not nobody's landed a blow yet but um, at some point Betty uh, gets you know gets the axe up to where she can swing it swings it misses candy it bounces off the linoleum floor and but cuts Candy's toe. Now there's blood in the room, and that always changes stuff. And um, you know, so now they're now they're enraged at one another in some way that I think neither understood. And they're struggling around. Now they're slipping more because there's blood on, on the linoleum. There's there's sweat. There's there are dogs outside looking in the window barking. There's just this this macabre, I always imagine this macabre scene, you know, almost 
horror movie-ish. And um, eventually Betty slips pretty badly. She's the larger of the two women, but she slips pretty badly and Candy wrests the ax away from her. And in the process, Betty uh, slipped and she, she slid down the front of a big freezer that was there in the room. And Candy pulled the ax back and brought it down right on top of her head toward the rear. And now there's more blood and now Betty Gore is, is more or less unconscious. We don't know quite what state she was in at that point, but that's when the thing changed again. And I always felt that at that point, Candy, if, if there'd been any, any sense left in her, uh, which is hard to know, but if there'd been any sense left, she put in, okay, I, wait a minute. <laughs> I, need to, I need to drop this ax. I need to go call 911. Or at the minimum, you know, I need to run. I need to get out of here. And um, she didn't. She kept hitting. And at some point, as I recall, and I meant my chronology may be imprecise here, but um, Betty was actually able to get back up again, which only, you know, exacerbated things more. And I think she actually tried to get out the back door to the garage. She couldn't slam the door. There's more swinging of the axe. Eventually, Betty succumbs, and then, and then there's quite a bit of, of uh, post-mortem damage that's done uh, by Candy. Meanwhile, the dogs are still barking. The nine-month-old is in a back bedroom, uh, uh, wailing and crying. Um, and Candy drops the axe, walks back through the living room, goes to the front. There's a, there's a bathroom right in the front hall. Uh, goes in and uh, takes a shower, cleans up. Uh, she's already, by this much by her admission, she's already thinking uh, the way she put it was, no one must know. You know, what the way we put it was, she's, she's thinking cover up. You know, this is post-crime um, guilt <laughs> coming through and she's planning, you know, how to keep this from people, how to cover it up. So she, she then goes through the rest of her day. Um, she, she cleans up, she has this wound, she has a wound on the toe that's bothersome because it's bleeding a lot and everybody knows foot wounds, you know, are troublesome. Um, she has a cut on her forehead. It's not as bad, but she tends to those. She goes out, gets in her car, drives home. She launders her clothes um, because she knows she needs to put on the same thing. She's going back to church to this luncheon thing, and she doesn't want people to notice that she's... Um, wearing something different. Although she does, she had sandals on, she changes out of the sandals into tennis shoes because of the toe. She goes back to the church luncheon, whatever it was, and, and acts for all the world as if nothing had happened. The, the murder of Betty Gore happened uh, in the morning. The body isn't discovered to much later that day. Um, why don't you take us through some of the activities of the day and who actually um, discovered the body? Betty's husband had been uh, out of town for a day or two. He was on a business trip to Minneapolis, I think. He had been trying to call her 
all late morning and all afternoon. He couldn't get her to answer. Well, he knew his wife. She didn't, she wasn't planning on going anywhere. She never went anywhere for the, if she shopped, she went, she came back. You know, he, he, this was very uncharacteristic of her. He had a feeling something was wrong. He called a variety of people to see if they had seen Betty, if they knew if anything, you know, had gone wrong with her. Um, and among them was Candy. He called Candy. Candy said, oh no, I don't, you know, I saw her this morning as I picked up the bathing suit for Elisa, the daughter, but she seemed fine when I left. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not, I don't mean to laugh, but you know, she, she said this just easy as could be and he believed her. I mean, they're even since they'd broken up, they were still good friends. He considered her a real good friend. Uh, someone whom he could lean on, someone whom he could trust. And uh, so more time passes. He calls her again, I think. And, and no, we haven't heard anything. And uh, he begins a series of calls to his neighbors. And uh, one of them eventually, they, they try various means of, of getting in the house. One of them eventually tries the front door just turned the knob and it opened because Candy had left it, you know, had left earlier that day without locking it, of course. And uh, so they went in, they, they, they see droplets of blood on the carpet and so forth. So they're kind of, they're a little bit freaked out. And um, they look around the house, they find that, the infant back in the um, back in the bedroom, still crying and untended to, and uh, they uh, uh, eventually focus on the utility room because the door is closed, but they can see beneath the uh, door that the light is on in there. Seems curious to them. It's nighttime now; it's way late at night, and they. Um, one of them, uh, forget his name at this stage, but uh, chances to open the door, takes the chance to open the door, cracks it open, looks in, just really sees this, this prone body and a lot of blood and then closes the door. And his first utterance is, oh, oh my God, she's blown her head off. So he, immediately was assuming, uh, uh, you know, suicide. The police, the police arrived on the scene um, and one of the three of the neighbors eventually called Alan. Uh, he's, he's absolutely devastated. I mean, I think he, I think that Alan, I spent a lot of time with him and I think that he, he felt guilty himself about this because he had a business trip. There was nothing he could do about that. But when he left that morning, Betty had been particularly upset. She, uh, she, was, she was worried she was pregnant again. She kept telling him, I don't know if I can handle another pregnancy. What are we going to do? Another child? Can we afford that? It was just everything was crashing in our, and now he was leaving for a business trip, which, you know, she didn't like much anyway. And so he had been feeling uneasy about her, I think, ever since he left. And uh, now for this to happen. And um, as I, as I, as I recall that the police to him and to other people for a while, you know, I'm not sure how long, but for reasons of that's what police do, they weren't going to put out too much information, especially to people who might end up being um, uh, suspects, that they did continue to say she was shot and say suicide, yeah. whatever. Yes. But they, they kept it. They, I'm sure as soon as they got in there they, and saw everything, they knew it was an act. Yeah. But they kept it 
to everyone, they had to say, yes, she's dead. She was shot. Yeah. And that's all we can tell you. Because, um, they, yeah, yeah, because they didn't, just real quickly, because they, they didn't know either. I mean, they were uh, flummoxed, and you're quite right. I mean, they were just keeping everything close, close to the chest because um, they, they didn't know if they had, you know, their, the rumors went crazy, you know, up in that area and really throughout Dallas. They, they you know, it was an escapee from a, a mental hospital. It was a, some, there were various drifter tales and, and all that, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of that was fueled by the fact that the cops weren't letting out what exactly had happened, which was obviously evident, but um, because they didn't really know who the perpetrator could have been. And, you know, as I said, I spent a lot of time with Alan Gore and I got to know him and he is this guy with, uh, you know, a decent conscience. And I think he, at a point, he, he thought, well, I've, I, I, I can't keep doing this. I've got to tell him about the affair. I've got to tell him. And at this point, he didn't, he didn't really have any idea that Candy had done this. He just said to himself, he said, I, I've not come clean with them about this aspect of this story, which is kind of relevant. And so he actually, he had a lawyer, I forget, that guy's name too, but he had a lawyer and, and he went in, called the cops, went in and told them about this affair with uh, Candy Montgomery. And that is how they got onto uh, looking at Candy. Well, she, she actually, they, they reasoned, she was the last person to see this woman alive, as it turns out. Let's let's get her physically examined. Well, she's got this strange cut on her toe. Um, the footprints, there were footprints in the blood in the room. They were suspiciously small footprints. They were a child's or a female's, small female, which Candy was. Um, they, they, you know, they weren't male as you'd expect for the kind of violence that, that, that had happened. And so things began to add up and, and the pressure was building on Candy. I mean, even she was not capable of, of lying that well for that long. <laughs> I mean, she's lying to her husband about it. She's lying to all her friends about it. And there's an attorney named Don Crowder who was part of this group out there in the church. And he was not a criminal lawyer. He was a, Don was, he was kind of an ambulance chaser type, but she, um, she eventually sought him out and kind of did this thing where, well, you did this kind of uh, hypothetical subjunctive thing <laughs> where she said, well, suppose you know, a person had, done something like this, you know, what should he or she, you know, and Don, of course, knew right away what was, what was going on. Candy was, at that point, telling a story up to the point of all the real messy violence in the uh, utility room. And that, to this day, uh, uh, I assume, to last, at least up to the last time I ever talked to her, she claims to have no memory of, okay? She claims to have no memory of the actual violence, you know, the, the blow to the top of the head, all of this post-mortem, you, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too uh, gory with your listeners, but there was... Well, you know, I want you to mention one thing that I was going to feed back into your narrative, and you can do it sure. now. There's two things I'd like you to cover. First, just quickly, you know, sort of uh, uh, forensically, number of blows uh, assumed. Yeah. And the other was the concept of the axe literally having to be wiggled to get out. Yeah. The, the, yeah, this was, this, this was a, 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 you know, one of the most, and I covered crime a long time for Texas Monthly. This is one of the most vicious crimes I've ever observed. 
and, and looking at the ME's report and all of that kind of uh, uh, information. She was struck at least 40 times, Betty Gore was. It was, you know, I think they said finally 41, although I personally think it could be actually more than that because I had the picture of once Betty was semi-conscious or even unconscious of, of Candy standing over her in these short, choppy little blows to the face, particularly because half the face was eviscerated. Uh, the, which is, as you know from doing this podcast, is, is very telling in, uh, in, in victimology. I mean, it's, it, it, it's the clear sign of a very personal attack <laughs> and a very intensely personal murder when you try to destroy someone's uh, face. And there were a number of blows, the, particularly the one to the head, but some others to the back and uh, I think the leg and, and one arm that were that that drove so deeply that they were they were squared off the 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 axe head had to be wiggled to be extracted and that again candace you know candy was i don't know five between five three and five four you know maybe 120 pounds something like that a small a small woman and the the amount of strength, the amount of adrenaline that was running through her had to just be, you know, monumental to do that. I had, for a time, we had a lot of the evidence. And I had that, that axe for a while uh, in, the, in the house. My, my wife was not real pleased about that. It's like, okay, this whole, this whole true crime thing has gone a little far. But but uh, it it's a heavy, heavy axe, you know. Um, anybody who lives in the country who splits their own wood knows what kind of axe it is. And it's hard to wield that. And um, uh, so it, it was, uh, you know, one of her arms was, was almost... Uh, uh, cut all the way off. I mean, it was, it was, uh, uh, and something about it to me always was the, just the collision between what that crime scene looked like and who did it is, is, is somewhere is why you and I are talking about, you know, this crime 35 years later. One of the things that it's still hard for me to, to get my head around is that all um, the actions of Candy af on the day of the murder, uh, after it was over, uh, to me, just show her to, uh, to appear so guilty. Uh, am I missing something? The interesting thing about this case, you know, is, you know, I think, I think your listeners can probably tell, you know, she, she eventually uh, pleads not guilty by reason of self-defense because Betty had gone and gotten the axe first. That was the predicate for the self-defense claim. Um, but I think I think it's right to wonder, uh, at least, if the at what point does self-defense expire? Because uh, as a, as a useful defense, there were numerous, according to her own chronology. And uh, there were numerous opportunities she had to turn and just get out of there. You know, self-defense, I talked to a lot of lawyers about this back at the time, and self-defense is this, it's, you know, obviously rarely invoked, but it's this thing where it's a rational defense. You know, even if it's within the space of three seconds, you are, the law requires that you uh, uh, sort through <laughs> your options and uh, decide uh, that I, I have no choice. I have to kill this person or 
or he or she is going to kill me. And you can, you know, you can sort you know, do I have a weapon too? No, I don't. Do, can, is there any way I can run? Well, yes, there is, or no, there isn't. You know, you, in, in an instant, you have to do that, but, but the law requires it. Well, Candy, she never, there was never any evidence that she attempted to escape this situation. And a point, she was so far into it that she didn't, she, I, you know, she wasn't aware of what she, she um, for the benefit of your listeners too, she, you know, the, the portion of the murder that occurred uh, that, that she does not remember the most intense moments in the utility room, all the blood, the heat, the sweat, the dogs barking, all that portion I talked about. Uh, she was, uh, her attorney put her under hypnosis, had a shrink put her under hypnosis to try to recover memories of, of that portion of this thing. And uh, uh, she, she went under pretty easily and she, you know, she spouted quite a bit of stuff. I mean, a lot of this detail I'm talking about came from that hypnosis session. Uh, but there was never anything in it that, that ever uh, said, uh, uh, well, and then, and, and then I thought about running, but I, you know, there, wasn't, there wasn't anything that ever said I, that she even thought about it. You know, her lawyer essentially got away with a pretty nifty defense because he, he argued at, at the, the first juncture, he argued that it was self-defense, a rational defense. Then he explained away the overkill, which any, any rational juror would say, well, yeah, self-defense, but my goodness, you know, what's the need, what was the need for all that? by this, you know, dissociative reaction that she supposedly had that goes back to childhood and all kinds of exotic things. And the, you know, I, I give, I give Crowder, the lawyer, I give him credit for doing that. I mean, he, he thought that, you know, I'm just going to take a shot and see if this works. And the, um, the prosecutor never, in the case, never pointed that out. You know, he never pointed out that, wait a minute, these things, these two, there are two defenses here and they're actually contradictory. And uh, she, you know, she's having it both ways in a sense. And um, he never, he never pointed that out. So, you know. Which is very, very uh, uh, slick in the sense that the murder was yeah. self-defense. The overkill was psychotic. And you can't, I mean, it's not criminally insane, but you can't hold her responsible for the psychotic aftermath. Yeah, people, people have asked me, people ask me all the time, I mean, what do you, you know, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I think that it was probably a manslaughter case. I mean, I, I think it was a a case of probably even involuntary manslaughter. I mean, I think it was a case where uh, uh, she she lost it, and and it maybe it started in the in the broadest sense of self defense in the way of of her being very scared, very frightened, and all this uh, flight or fight. It kind of came out of her and she she didn't flee she chose to fight and so you had this ridiculous violent uh overkill but nonetheless it at some point it ceased to be self-defense in my opinion and and it became a form a, a form of manslaughter now how long did the uh did the jury uh deliberate oh i think uh, as i recall a couple of hours, maybe a little less. And, you know, I think it, it, it's interesting. This, this, was a, this was a real jury of her peers. Uh, there were 
motions on both sides to change the venue here because it's a small community and obviously everyone knew everyone and everyone knew everything about this case but the judge decided to keep it there and so these people on the jury knew Candy, they knew Betty, um, they knew Pat, they knew everybody. And um, I always had the feeling, no one ever confirmed this for me, but this is just me. I always had the feeling that this, the, the community represented by the jury kind of turned in on itself, kind of got very self-protective in a sense. And uh, in that way, it was never, it was always going to come out that Candy gets off because to convict her would, would somehow condemn the entire culture out there. I always got, I always got the feeling that they, now that doesn't, say a lot about what they thought of Betty, of course, but, but the, to, to convict Candy of this awful thing, to officially publicly say, you know, uh, as you and I were just discussing, this, this wasn't self-defense. <laughs> this, in fact, was, was a homicide, uh, an unjustified homicide. Now it wasn't murder. What you know, it wasn't all this and that. But it was, it, it was a homicide. It was outside the law. It it shouldn't have been done. To to announce that um, was too much for them. It would it would it would condemn their entire life out there and their little church and their you know all this 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 thing that they built and. Um, they weren't going to do that, you know. Like I say, no one ever told me that, but that's what I inferred in the ensuing days from talk radio and these various ways that you can gauge uh, sentiment. They, you know, across Dallas, Fort Worth, and all of North Texas, I mean, there was just outrage uh, that uh, she had gotten off on, on that particular defense and uh, with, but within her little community, her neighbors, her, her little town, you know, people were okay with it. She thought, well, life will go back to normal. I'll go back to my routine. I'll go to the store. I'll take the kids to school. I'll do all this, you know, we'll go to this and that restaurant. And, um, you know, not true. I mean, she goes to the grocery store maybe two towns over uh, because it's bigger and she goes and she's getting these stares and she's getting looks, she's getting comments. And um, it was kind of a real awakening uh, for her that she was, uh, you know, she was technically not guilty, but she was uh, shunned and... Um, you know, but then they, at that point, they, you know, made the decision to move. They remained married, correct? They did. And, and I think still are. They, they actually moved to Georgia someplace. And Alan remarried, correct? He remarried at least once, maybe another time. I lost, kind of lost track of him at a point, but he moved, I think he moved to California, but I don't know where he is now. Jim, with a few minutes we have left uh, discussing your book, Evidence of Love, a true story of passion and death in the suburbs, which you wrote with John Bloom. Um, as, as I uh, said to you, I think before we started recording that I found this book fascinating of all the many, you know, true crime books I read because it's, boy, it's a delicate book to write because um, everyone knows the outcome, not only, you know, who did it, who done it, but um, how the um, trial becomes adjudicated and everyone goes on with their lives. So I'm sure it was not an easy book for, for you and John uh, to write and, and make it still interesting. Yeah, that presented an interesting, uh, just in terms of true crime craft, I guess, 
it, it presented an interesting problem for John and me because, uh, as you said in the outset, uh, everybody knows what happened, or everybody knows who did it. Uh, what we had to, in structuring the book, what we had to hold out as suspense was what exactly happened as best can be reckoned. And, you know, we had to go with the, we used a combination. I mean, we used the, some of the hypnosis material. I, I spent a lot of time with the medical examiner and reconstructing how, how it went down because he had a very firm theory of which blows occurred when and, and how the, uh, the two of them were positioned when those blows uh, took place. And it's, it's interest is worth noting the, the, his conclusions were pretty close to what Candy described in her, in her hypnosis session. Uh, and so I always felt that, well, that's one way or the other, that's <laughs> that's basically what happened, um, uh, and you know that's that's not to make any you know any judgments on. And at the risk of uh, being accused of being glib, I will say that it's clear that the uh, story of uh, Candy Montgomery never dies, and there is a continued always interest in it. I mean, look at me. Uh, so there is other stuff afoot, I believe, on the case. What's in the works now for something, a redo, you know, a documentary redo? Is that some in the... Well, there is a, I'm not at, yeah, I'm not at liberty to talk a lot oh, okay. about it, but, but, um... But you're being, you're being used. Yes. Great. Yeah, the, no, that's the, great. Um, uh, I'm a... Uh, signed in, so is John as a consulting sure. producer. Great. And who's the, who's the, the, you can tell me that because that's in the, in the, uh, on the internet. Yeah. Who's, who's playing Candy? Yeah, Elizabeth Moss. Yes. Uh, yes. Has, has agreed to play Candy and it's right. in the, it's, it's in this vague um, realm of development. This has been a, uh, an amazing hour um, and the case is amazing. Uh, the book is Evidence of Love, A True Story of Passion and Death in the Suburbs by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson, made into several documentaries on cable, whatnot, and another one might be in the works soon. Again, the case is from 1980, but it's a fascinating um, crime mystery. Without a mystery, we know who killed poor Betty, but it, it's an amazing, and the book itself is an amazing read. Um, it's, it's a page turner. I know you've heard that before, but believe me, it is. I, uh, it's about 300, over 300 pages. I read it in one sitting. So uh, I suggest you pick it up. It's certainly Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Oddly, I got mine at a library of all things. So please do pick it up and do go to Jim's website, which I will, of course, have printed on my site. And it's Jim Atkinson, J I M A T K I N S O N, no weirdness, uh, dash rider, R Y D E R, like the car truck company.com. Jim Atkinson dash rider.com. And um, again, you can read all about the wonderful stuff. He's done a great journalist, a great sport to do this. Uh, again, I just want to thank you so much. This has been more than I could have hoped for. And so have a good weekend, stay safe, and stay healthy. You too. Thanks for the time. I'm sure most of you listening are familiar with the doggerel, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. Actually, that's a bit of an exaggeration. It was only 20. So it looks like Candy actually bested Lizzie Borden. And like Lizzie Borden, Candy Montgomery assumed that after the acquittal, she would live a very quiet life of anonymity. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Candy received quite a bit of hate mail after the acquittal, mostly directed to her through her attorneys. One interesting letter included a poem 
that was sent to her around Halloween. The title of the poem was, Candy is Bad for Your Health. And it goes like this. Candy Montgomery was a whore. She screwed around with Alan Gore. When Betty Gore brought it up, Candy used an axe to cut her up. In Collin County, murder's okay if you go to church and pray. And don't worry, adultery is cool if you teach Sunday school. Well, ladies and gents, that brings us to the end of another episode of Murder Most Foul. I hope you found it interesting. Please tell your friends and, of course, point out that they can uh, access any of the past episodes on all their favorite podcast platforms. Anyone who would like to get in touch with me, leave comments or suggestions for cases they're familiar with that they'd like me to cover, uh, you can do so either th through email at my website, which is murdermostfoul.com, all one word. And you can also um, send me messages or chat with me on Twitter. And my Twitter account is uh, MurderMostFoul2. There's actually a MurderMostFoul1, and I am MurderMostFoul2. Again, all one word. So again, until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. Mm -hmm.